600 years before it happened, Daniel predicted that Jerusalem would be destroyed, but he went on to predict a future ruler who would flow out of the final thrust of the fourth kingdom, a ruler who would do whatever he wanted. Let's look with our study leader Dave Wurtson at the clues Daniel gives us about his career, his destiny, and then you can decide who will rule over your life. I want you to imagine a person that has straight A's from Harvard Graduate School. He got a PhD. John F. Kennedy was an incredible speaker. How many of you remember, you're old enough like me to remember, ask not. How many of you as younger folks have heard that idea? He was an incredible speaker. I actually remember when Martin Luther King was on those steps there in the great Washington area, that great, beautiful place, and gave that speech from the Lincoln Memorial. They were incredible speakers. But I want you to imagine somebody that has even greater speaking ability than anyone you've ever imagined. They're brilliant. They have incredible speaking ability. Militarily, like Alexander the Great that we've studied about in the book of Daniel, Alexander the Great took the technology that his father had taught him militarily and swept the world all the way into Afghanistan and into India. But imagine someone that's even more gifted than a MacArthur, even more gifted than an Eisenhower, someone that has incredible speaking ability, incredible administrative ability. And what he's going to do is he is going to do what the Lord Jesus chose not to do in his first coming. Remember in Jesus' first coming in his temptation after 40 days in the wilderness, he was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan challenged him, throw yourself down. And Jesus said, no, because you only worship the Lord your God and I only obey my Father's will and this is not the time. Remember Satan took the Lord Jesus and showed him all the kingdom of the world. Remember that? And said, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdom of the world. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to follow this humble thing. You don't have to give up your life. You can just become world ruler now. That's the plan for a human being in Genesis chapter 1 to be God's administrator, to rule the world. You can do it the easy way. What did Jesus say? Get away from me, Satan. There's going to be another ultimate human being, an incredibly gifted human being, And Satan's going to make the same promise, only this time, this great world ruler will take Satan's promise for three and a half years. It'll look like he's bringing peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You say, Dave, how do you know that that day is coming? Because if we say the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, we learned about a great image. Remember that? And we had an image that started out with the Babylonian Empire, then it switched into the Medo-Persian Empire, then it went into the Greece Empire. And I want you to listen to me. Daniel predicted an anti-Messiah figure that would come from the Greek Empire. And in Daniel 8, that we carefully studied together, Daniel 8 describes Antiochus Epiphanes, an Old Testament Antichrist, that was a relatively not too powerful Syrian ruler But he offered a pig on the altar in Jerusalem and desecrated the worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem. And for three and a half years, he was able to keep the true sacrifices being offered. And then he was cut down by the living God. And the Maccabees were able to purify the temple. And I taught you about Hanukkah. So in the book of Daniel, we've had an Old Testament anti-the-Messiah. 
anti-God's covenant to Israel. But what a lot of people miss, even some brilliant Bible scholars miss, is that Daniel chapter 7 spoke not of a horn, not of a ruler, not of a big mouth, and not of a very arrogant man that would come out of the third kingdom like Antiochus Epiphanes. But it spoke about a future ruler that's going to come that flows out of the final manifestation of the Western Roman Empire, the Western influence, the Western civilizations that combines Greece and Rome and Babylon and Medo-Persia, all of it together in some great big hodgepodge of human pride. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Turn to Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel chapter 9 lays out for us 70 weeks. Last week, it might have been a little bit hard to follow, but Daniel has been praying. If you'll understand God's plan for history, you'll understand specifically God's plan to really meet the needs of his Jewish people. Daniel's been praying, Lord, what are you going to do about Jerusalem? What are you going to do about my people? God says 70 weeks are determined for my people. And I showed you last week how these are 70 weeks of years. And Daniel was told that from the time that a decree would be given, not a decree like Zerubbabel received just to go back to Israel, to go back and be able to resettle Jerusalem, not a decree like Ezra received to be able to go back and really get the temple rolling again, But God predicted in Daniel 9 that we studied carefully is it was going to be a decree that said you can rebuild the fortifications. You can build the walls. You can build the moat. The decree that had focused on the rebuilding the fortifications was given on March 4th, 444 B.C. And it was given by Nehemiah. When you open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, that's the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. And Daniel predicted that there would be seven years, which equals seven weeks, and we talked to you about how the weeks are weeks of years because Daniel had just been praying about weeks of years. He'd been praying about Jeremiah's 70 years of captivity. And the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah predicted are almost up when Daniel's praying in Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel's 70th week is divided up. It's divided up into a first period of seven weeks of years, which equals seven times seven, 49 years. From the time that Nehemiah went back to rebuild the fortifications, got the walls completed, the temple under Haggai and Zechariah is completed, in about 49 years, Jerusalem is refortified. And it becomes a city again. And that's true all the way till the time of Jesus. Until 70 AD when it was destroyed, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. So the first seven weeks of years is Nehemiah going back and the period in which Jerusalem is refortified, rebuilt. Then there's another 62 weeks of years, or 432 years, which is going to be until the Messiah comes. So Daniel predicted that the Messiah would come in that period of years. There's going to be a total period of 70 times 7. And that brings us down to March 30th, A.D. 33. And there's strong evidence that A.D. 33, March 30th, is when Jesus walked through the Golden Gate riding on a donkey, humbly. 
like Harold Honer that Dave and I work for and then we've taught with at Dallas Seminary, has done lots and lots of research to show how the time period works out exactly. And so this is the end of the 69 weeks. It's the end of the 483 years. You got it? Now, there's seven years to get to the 490 years. Now, as you open your Bible to Daniel chapter 9 today, Daniel chapter 9 predicts that after this period of seven weeks in which Jerusalem is rebuilt, uh, 62 more weeks in which we're going to count out till the Messiah comes, then it predicts that some things are going to happen. It says the Messiah is going to be killed, which is an incredible prediction. Look at Daniel chapter 9. It says after the 62 sevens, that would be after this second period I have here, the 62 weeks, it says the anointed one, and that's the word Messiah. You see it in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. All of you open up your Bibles so that you have it. I want you to see that this isn't what David's saying. I want you to be able to see it. You see it says after the, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off, and he will have nothing. It looked like from a human standpoint that Jesus, when he was crucified, had nothing. The Romans, for example, that crucified him said, it's over, it's done. Does that make sense? And one of the areas about the present time that you're living with is Jesus doesn't play a human power game. In other words, how many of you, when you receive Jesus, realize that Jesus spoke to your heart and he spoke tenderly to your heart? He spoke and challenged you in your heart, but how many of you were forced to believe? How many of you say, no, I chose because I wanted to believe. Everyone that believed in Jesus, were you powered into it or were you graciously given an invitation? That's the difference. We're living in a time, and there's a great mystery in this. The omnipotent, almighty, sovereign king of kings has chosen to work this morning in every one of your hearts. And you can decide. He comes riding on a donkey. He comes humbly. He comes nondescript. He's given you all the fulfilling prophecies. He came right on time. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He did the wondrous things, giving sight to the, uh, to the blind and gave legs to cripples and raised the dead. He himself rose again from the dead. But he right now is working in the world in people's hearts. Now there's, and so he was cut off, and it looks like, from a human perspective, if I would have gone to Rome in 30, when, when Jesus was killed in 33 AD, March 30th, uh, a week after March 30th, when Jesus was killed on Good Friday, and I would have asked the Roman emperor, what do you think about what happened in Palestine? He said, there's nothing happened in Palestine. We just killed an insurrectionist. We just killed a Jew that was given his trouble. No big deal. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, you hardly even know about Tiberius. You hardly know about Sejanus, for example, that was actually ruling the Roman Empire, that was thrown out of power just before Jesus was crucified, which is why it was probably in 33 AD, because it explains Pilate's so different viewpoint. He's so scared because the person that put Pilate in power had just been thrown out of power in Rome. And God is working all these details together in history. 
But if I were to ask the Roman emperor, he would say it's no big deal. But today, in the United States, there's been a furor that I'm going to talk to you at the end of my methods today about should you pray in Jesus' name? Like a big debate, Rick Warren, Pastor Saddleback. And it's going to be very interesting to watch. Like, should he pray in Jesus' name for the inauguration? For the last inaugurations, it's lots of prayers have been offered in Jesus' name. I got news for you. Read history. Tons of prayers have been offered in Jesus' name. Big debate in our nation. No one's debating about Tiberius. No one even remembers him. And that's what I want to talk to you about. And you need to decide. There's a great big divide. There's those that follow Jesus. And he's a humble servant that comes riding on a donkey and wants to reach you in your heart. And he doesn't use his omnipotent power right now. And there's another world ruler that's going to come. And it talks to us about, first of all, if you look in your notes, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the prediction of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is really powerful. Daniel predicted that after the Messiah was cut off, And after it looked like he had nothing, look what he said. He says, the people of the ruler who will come. The ruler who will come is distinct from the anointed one, the Messiah, that will be cut off. So Daniel's predicting a future ruler. Jesus, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, also said that there's going to be many false Christs that come. Don't be deceived by them. He said there is going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. He predicted it. He also predicted that the future abomination of desolation, which Daniel talks about, is still a future event. This is a very powerful thing. Daniel predicted that the Jerusalem temple that was being rebuilt after his lifetime when Haggai and Zechariah finally got the people to get together and rebuild the temple. Herod the Great made it one of the great wonders of the world. Jesus entered at the Golden Gate and all of the Jews in the first century said, this is a marvelous holy place. Jesus said there's not going to be one stone left upon the other. Daniel predicted that 600 years before it happened. Look what it says, about 600 years before it happened. Look what it says. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy Jerusalem which happened under Titus in 70 AD, and the sanctuary, that's the temple. Then he says the end will come. It's going to come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of war. So young people, when someone tells you we're going to totally solve the problem of war, whenever you hear Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We can do it. Watch out. Throughout all of my life, whenever I've heard this is the time of peace, that's when war breaks out. Because Jesus told us that until he comes back, there's comfort because he says, I'm in control. So if you're in politics, if you're responsible for making decisions, you never do it by fear, saying everything will get blown up. If you're in the environmental movement, which you need to be as a believer because this is our Father's world, but you don't believe that we're going to incinerate the planet. We're not going to get it too hot or too cold because of us. 
and you'll make terrible decisions if you're ruled by fear. God, through his revelation, is telling you there's going to be war and desolations. God is the one that's determining the future of planet Earth, not you, not any ruler, because you can use it. If I'm a political leader or a military leader, I can use the ultimate thing. We're going to use our nuclear weapons to blow up everything if you don't do so-and-so. If you're scared, you'll give in to that, and you'll do wrong, and you won't make wise decisions. So you rest. I don't decide ultimately who will rule planet Earth. Amen? Very important. Jesus was able to predict because Daniel predicted that Jerusalem was destroyed. It was. And wars have continued since 7 AD. And the Jewish people were scattered all over the earth. And a lot of them lived right here in the United States of America, and they still do. And then it talks about the person that we're focusing on today. And we'll be focusing on him as we move into Daniel chapter 11. And today I'll give you a little feel for his career. It says that the people of the prince, so we first of all know, a lot of you here, well, the Antichrist is Jewish. No, he isn't. That feeds anti-Semiticism. It was not the Jewish people that destroyed the city of Jerusalem, was it, in 7 AD? Who destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 7 AD? Rome did, the Fourth Empire. That doesn't mean he's Italian. The Roman Empire was multiracial. It was, in fact, some of the really strong guys were, were, were Frankish and German, and they came from the tribe in those countries that didn't even exist. You know, France and Germany weren't even countries back then. So I want you to understand that we're not thinking ethnically, but we are thinking he's not Jewish. I know that. He's a Gentile. The false prophet that Revelation talks to us about is going to be Jewish. He's going to be a false messiah. But the Antichrist is not Jewish. It's very important because that's through the centuries that's fed anti-Semiticism. The Jews are not the ones that are your enemies. They're not the ones, like Hitler said, that are destroying civilizations. In fact, you should thank the Lord every day for Jews. They're the ones that gave you that marvelous plant down there in Glen Rose. E equals MC squared. Einstein's Jewish. They swim like, the, like in sharks, Mark Spitz. When I went to Syracuse Medical School for my, for my exams and stuff, the place was loaded with Jewish brothers and sisters. We need to thank the Lord for his blessing upon those people. Amen? I don't want to hear a word in Melothian Bible Church of anti-Semiticism. Just like I don't want to hear any anti-racial stuff. And I'm not saying that arrogantly. I'm saying that because I love you. And I want to ferret out those dark things that infest our soul. But the Antichrist is going to be of the people of those that destroyed Jerusalem. So he flows out of that fourth empire, which is expressed itself at the end of time in this weird ten-nation confederacy. He's able to defeat three kingdoms, sets up a seven-nation confederacy, and he rules the world. He comes from the Western Bloc, I believe. That's his people. It flows from that destruction in Jerusalem. Then it says this. It says that, what, what about his career? It says that he will, conform, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So this is the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. The way Daniel's 70th week, which is when God's going to sum up his dealings with his earthly people Israel and a mighty movement of the Spirit of God among the Jewish people, 
It will begin with this anti-Messiah figure who will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, so three and a half years into the seven years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did. I personally believe that the temple will be rebuilt, that there will be Orthodox Jewish kind of sacrifices offered again. Humanly, I, that's really troublesome to me, just to be honest with you. Most Israelis are totally secular right now, and the last thing in the world they want to do is have a temple. And so the idea of them having sacrifices and having a temple seems so far out. But to be honest with you, when I read my brothers and sisters that were teaching 100 years ago, the promise that Israel would be back in the land was unbelievable. But they are. And so I believe that there is going to be a rebuilding of the temple. And I think that Antichrist, with his false prophet, I think the false prophet is going to create a massive movement. It'll be something like, hey, it could even be we're going to have all the Islamic people worship at the Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock there. And we'll, right next door of it, we'll build the temple for Jews in that great big courtyard to the side. And this great Western leader will be such an incredible diplomat that it'll get everybody to say, we're all going to be together. And we'll all live happily ever after. And the Jews can offer their holy sacrifices. And we'll all rejoice because we've done it. If you think that couldn't happen, I think it could. And it could happen pretty fast. Because the Antichrist is going to stop that worship. I know one thing for sure is he's going to really attack the worship of the true Messiah, Jesus. I know that for sure. No matter whether you're on mill, post mill, you know, backwards mill, forwards mill, whatever mill you are, no mill, like with what our mill is, whatever you are prophetically, as your pastor, I try to teach you things that I absolutely know for sure. One thing I know absolutely for sure, this man ruler to come is going to attack those that believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want you in the depths of your soul to believe that Jesus is the anointed one. And he's a humble savior that gave his life for you. And he's the only forgiveness and atonement for sin. Amen? And I know that for sure. And there's going to come a great world leader. And I want you to be very alert for it. Anyone that tells you, you can't believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. You can't pray in his name, watch out. It says in the middle of the week, this Antichrist figure will stop the sacrifice and the offering. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that's decreed is poured out upon him. The abomination that causes desolation, since the time I've been a little kid, this has been a weird phrase. You know, it's kind of like a mystery phrase to me. The, you know, the abomination of desolation. It goes like this. An abomination is something that makes you, ah, it's awful. That's just terrible. That's what abomination means. It's abominable. It's frightening. It's destructive. Like walking into Auschwitz, if you were with the Russian troops who came into Auschwitz, their first response when they saw those bodies that were getting ready, just all kinds of human hair and all kinds of stuff, and then they saw those ovens, there was horror even among Russian soldiers. It's abominable. All of you have experienced abominable things. How many of you know now 
That's what an abomination is. A desolating thing, it's something that produces, like we use the English word desolate. Like if I go to West Texas, I know some of you love West Texas, but if it's in the middle of the afternoon and it's 115 degrees and you don't have any water, it's desolate. And I've been there, done that. And praise God, you know, there was water close by. When you go through the Mojave Desert, for you Californians, in the heat of the day, it's desolating. That's what this word means. It's an abominable, horrible thing that stands in arrogant defiance of the living God that we've been learning about through this whole book. And when you defy the living God, it desolates your soul. And that's what I want all of you to know. In your own life today, like what I'm telling you to do, there is the true Jesus You need to do what he desires. You need to do what his plan is for you. What you did is so very important. It's not whether we sing hymns or choruses. We all know that. Aren't you rejoicing for 25 minutes? You all poured your hearts out to Jesus. Amen? Do you realize how precious that is? That's what Antichrist is going to tell you you cannot do. Daddies, worship Jesus with your kids. You do it in your homes. You do it with your wife. You begin a day saying, Jesus, guide us today. Then you're drinking deeply from the spirit of the Messiah. Because if you turn to Daniel chapter 11, I just want to give us a four of you. We won't do too much with this. But I want you to realize that in Daniel 11, we're going to go through it, and I'll get you ready for it. We're going to, those of you that are history buffs, you're going to love it. Because Daniel's going to predict with really careful accuracy the whole history of the third empire and the four empires that flowed out of Alexander the Great. And he's going to talk a whole bunch about Antiochus Epiphanes and even describe the Roman senator that comes and stops Antiochus. And if you don't understand anything I just said, hang on. You'll understand before we're done at another time. But in this chapter, when you get to verse 36... Daniel, which he often does, it's like you look at Antiochus Epiphanes, but there's another bigger Antichrist behind him. And he talks in verse 36 about a king who will do as he pleases. As I close today, I want you to understand, a lot of you ask me, how do I know who Antichrist is? You understand who Antichrist is by discerning today the spirit of Antichrist. Number one. An anti-Jesus person does as they please. Have you ever heard that? Do you ever do as you please? Do you ever know, Jesus, you want me to do so-and-so, but I'm not going to do it. That's Antichrist. It's in my soul. The ultimate Antichrist is going to do that bigger than anyone. He's going to do as he pleases. Alexander the Great in history. Alexander the Great did as he pleased. Hitler, in just recent history, a little bit before I was born, Hitler used a mighty Wehrmacht and the Panzer incredible tank warfare. And he came close. Like this chapter goes on to describe invasions in Egypt. You guys study world history. The Germans would have taken Egypt and would have swept into the Sinai, would have taken the oil fields. You'd all be speaking Sprechensee Deutsch. Guten Morgen, mein Freund. But God had other plans. 
I'm just mentioning that because a lot of you sit there going, that'll never happen. Oh, yeah. This is real stuff. And it begins in your own heart. Do you today do as you please? The second thing it says here is that he exalts and magnifies himself above every god. And he will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. So he does as he pleases, and he is arrogant. He's prideful. He exalts himself above God. Now, just stop and think about, like, every human being, if you're tempted to worship human beings, some of the smartest men that I have studied with, Men that would, if I asked them a question, they would be able to give me the journal and date and the place on the page where it was. And I would be tempted to worship them. And they would be tempted to say, I'm the smartest person in the world. And God in his grace has enabled me to study with some really smart people, both in my college time and my time at Dallas. Guys from Princeton, guys from Harvard, everything. You know what really sobered me up? When I visited them in the rest home and they're dribbling out of their mouth and they don't even know who I am. That's why I don't worship any human being except Jesus. Amen? I want you always to remember that. Young people, when you're tempted to follow anybody, you're tempted to believe in beauty that will last forever. It won't. Intelligence that will last forever. It won't. To me, one of the dumbest things in the world it's for any of us to trust in any human being. It's really important. And President-elect Obama has been saying, hey, it's not me. So you need to pray that it'll keep that attitude. I want you to pray for your leaders, but I don't want you to worship them. Did you hear what I just said? I want you to pray for all of your leaders. And if you work with them, whatever leader you work with, at business, in school, in politics, in police work, I don't want you ever to worship the person that you're working with and obey them blindly. You only worship Jesus, amen? So there's a king that does as he pleases. There's a king that's arrogant, and he sets himself up. It says that he will show no regard for the God of his father. It's a normal thing to at least have some kind of a religious, you know, gentleness towards tradition. This person will, will jettison that doesn't have any regard for any kind of traditional religion at all. He will honor with gold and silver a God of fortresses. It says also that he, it's very important, I want you to see it, it says that he will have no regard for the God of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any God. He will exalt himself. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God of unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones. He will attack the mightiest fortresses, with the help of, of the foreign God. That's this God of militarism. And he will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over the many people and will distribute their land at a price. I want you to get this. Because it's not just about you saying, hey, I can look in the paper, I can figure out who Antichrist is. That's not what I'm talking about. What I want you to be aware of, this is the spirit of Antichrist. You do as you please. I want every one of you to ask yourself, do I do today what I please or what Jesus pleases? Like when I am asked to pray at a city function, I'm a follower of Jesus. When I've spoken at Baccalaureate through the years in Midlothian, 
I'm a follower of Jesus. And I just tell the audience, if, if, if a Jewish rabbi was here, I want the Jewish rabbi to pray consistent with their beliefs. And I'll die for their right to do that. If an Islamic ummah is here, I want them to pray according to their, what they believe. And I want it to be a free dialogue. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus is Jewish and he's the only savior that can save Jews or Islam or total pagans. Now, whatever you are. And I'm going to tell you that. And I don't think that I'm blocking your freedom. I think that's the only hope you have to be free. You understand what I said? The Antichrist does as he pleases instead of believing in God. The one desired of women, what have I taught you all of the last several years? The one desired by women is the one Genesis 3.15. There's going to come a great man-child born of a woman. In the Old Testament, the one desired of women is the coming Messiah. This Antichrist will stand against the promise of the Savior. Instead, he worships military might. So do you worship power? Say might. How many of you ever heard? Might makes right. That's the Antichrist slogan. That was Hitler's slogan. That was Stalin's slogan. We need to be really careful. That's not our slogan. God makes right. And he's the ultimate mighty one. And no matter how powerful our nuclear bombs might be, they are little pop guns compared to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So as I close today, where does the rubber meet the road? There's been a lot of debate over the last couple of weeks. Pastor Rick Warren is supposed to pray on Tuesday. So you need to listen. Lots of debate. Is it right to pray in Jesus' name in a public place? No. Isn't it bigoted? You know, shouldn't we pray? And then I heard as I was leaving church last Sunday, I turned on NPR, and I heard someone saying, I'm going to get to pray at the very first beginning of the festivities. And I heard this bishop, he said, I have done careful study of the history of the prayers and inaugurations. And then he said this, I'm horrified at how distinctly Christian they are. And then he said, I'm very aware that I'm not going to pray to the Christian God. Instead, I think I'll pray to the God of our many understandings. Now, here's what I want you to understand. That's Bishop Robinson. And that's the bishop from New Hampshire that has divided the American Episcopal Church. If we do as we please, and that becomes divine, then we do whatever our body craves. And Bishop Robinson believes that it is progressive, it is liberating, and he's rejoicing that he and his partner have been invited to the festivities. Now, I want all of you young people especially to listen to me. Because you are fed from the time that you're little bitty kids that I am now being very intolerant and very wrong. And I want you to listen to me. I love Bishop Robinson. I want him to repent. 
And I want him to join you in worshiping Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus is not the God of our many understandings. What I taught you today is not my idea of God. I've tried to teach you what Daniel revealed to us about God. Do you understand the difference? It's not intolerant for a Christian minister that believes that Jesus is the only Savior and the only hope for mankind and believes that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. It's not intolerant. In fact, it is incredibly loving for him to freely pray because Daniel says that that's the Messiah. That's the only hope for mankind. So I want you to know that no matter how kind Bishop Robinson is, no matter how gentle he is, he's an Anglican. He made a vow. The history of Anglicanism believes in the Apostle Creed that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And he is the only way to heaven. In fact, right here in the Dallas area, our Episcopalian brothers and sisters, some of them have withdrawn from the National Union over just the issue of a person that doesn't believe in the Trinity as the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus being the anointed one. Bishop Robinson is speaking another false good news. President Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, was not ashamed to mention the Christian God. And I don't know whether Lincoln was a believer or not. There's a lot to debate about that. But there's going to be a lot of talk in the next several days about Lincoln's influence. And we need to rejoice in that because this is a great stepping stone for our country. But I want you as a born-again believer, like if you're a school teacher, if a student asks you about your faith, you can talk to them about your faith. If you don't, you're talking about something else. I want you to be alert to that. You don't teach your children in your school that Sophia, wisdom, is the answer for everything. If you're asked to do that, you just humbly say, that's just not true. It's not what I believe. And men and women have died, so you have that freedom. So don't be intimidated. If you're a judge, you need to represent all the people. You need to honor all the people. But you have a right to your own personal conviction. And you need to represent Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the source of right and wrong. And that's a great liberation. So as we close today, the important thing that we ask ourselves is in public life and in private life, they're not divided. Are we doing what we desire? Are we arrogantly saying we're God and we're going to do whatever we want to do? Have we turned away from the desire of women that it's the coming Jesus? Are we in love with him? Are we letting him be first in our life? That's where the rubber meets the road. Because it's decision time. Is it Antichrist? We're going to solve our problems. Man can do it. 
we can do what we please and then baptize that as being right. That's the spirit of Antichrist. The Germans before World War II were really on this side. They threw the Bible out. They taught that human rat reason was above everything. And they unleashed terrible evil forces that got out of there like a terrible evil flood. And millions upon millions of people died. The Bible's saying that there's a day ahead of us that's going to be the same flood of destruction. But the good news is, today, we can be worshiping the Messiah being humble followers of this ruler that came just humble and riding on a donkey, dying on the cross for our sins. What an incredible opportunity we have this week in all of our businesses and in all of our schools and all of our families to do what he desires, to put ourselves under his lordship, to not let our own ideas of right and wrong control us, and instead to be down on our knees submitting to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings.